as a director, I really don't want to, like, I'm, of course you make a plan, but I don't actually want to get the plan. I want to get something that's better than what I would have come up with in my living room in L.A. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a lone woman finds herself squaring off against two trespassers in director Julian Higgins' thriller, God's Country. Based on James Lee Burke's short story, Winter Light, and his own short film of the same name, Higgins' feature tells the story of a college professor who finds herself drawn into an escalating battle of wills after she confronts two hunters who claim they're just passing through. In addition to God's Country, Higgins' directorial credits include the feature film Mending Wall and episodes of the series Guidance and House. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Higgins spoke with director Chloe Okuno about filming God's Country. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about the genesis of this project. I think I know it was based on a short story called Winter Light that I believe you then adapted into a short film before you know, expanding it into a feature. So I'm very curious, what drew you to the story in the first place? Well, it's, it's fascinating because like, you, you know, you're drawn to material for reasons you don't initially understand, I feel. I read the story and I kind of knew immediately it was something I wanted to deal with in my life. I just didn't really know how. And I read the story in 2010 for the first time. And it's a very contained and very and somewhat abrupt short story. Uh, and it's, it's it, the, the, main, the main character in the short story is an uh, older, retired, white man. And, um, you know, my parents are both college professors. I uh, felt like I recognized um, the sort of world of the story. And also, um, I'm from rural New Hampshire. So there's something about, like, especially in winter, the relationship between uh, these kinds of characters and this landscape and like the way they see their lives in that landscape that I really identified with. The short, the short story, the, the adaptation that I did with, into the short film is very faithful to the short story. And, um, you know, I made it, it, it's a story about masculinity essentially. So that, that's really what the short film was about. And I thought that was kind of all I was going to do with it. And, um, and then uh, a few years later, the 2016 election <laughs> took place. And, um, and so at that time, I kind of felt like I either needed to um, quit filmmaking entirely <laughs> or really make the work into a, you know, a response to what was happening. Because I was feeling so many strong feelings at that time, uh, anger, sadness, uh, fear. And it felt like if I was going to continue to be a filmmaker, I needed to, you know, deal with the world that I was looking at in the work. And at, this, at that time, uh, the, my writing partner, Shay Obana, um, uh, he and I had met at this after party for a film that he was involved with, and he was feeling very much the same way. And so in this, um, in the moment that the story came back to me, uh, he was sort of in my head already. Shay is um, 
you know, was raised in the South, his, uh, in the sort of, uh, the sort of environment that is referred to here. Um, you know, he was raised by his mom and his grandmother in the sort of the sort of black church environment that you see in the film. And, uh, he would say, I mean, he's on daddy duty tonight, but if you were here, um, he would say that, uh, his mission as a storyteller is to center women like his mother in genre storytelling, which he never got to see as a kid. So, for all these reasons, um, we sort of decided that maybe we could access the feelings and the issues that we wanted to talk about and explore in the movie by changing that main character from Roger Guidry, the retired uh, college professor, to Sandra Guidry, um, 40-something black woman. And of course, um, that carries with it a huge responsibility. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, it's, I, it's very interesting. I didn't realize that um, it almost sounds like between you and your parents and their sort of professor experience and Shea Ogbonna's experience growing up, you sort of have like a biographical fusion in this movie. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to hear what, what was that process like co-writing this with him and sort of finding the story together. And it sounds like drawing upon both of, you know, very personal experiences for you. Yeah, it it is very strange. I I imagine to hear me, the white guy from New Hampshire, say that this is a very personal movie for me. But um, you know, my my mother is a, essentially a feminist film scholar, and um, my parents were sort of commie pinko activists in the '60s. And uh, you know, I was very much raised with sort of like a very um, progressive political persuasion. And of course I'm a feminist. My father's a feminist. So like a lot of the movies that I was exposed to as a kid were through my mom's, you know, the work she was doing. I was just surrounded by like French new wave films all the time when I was growing up. That's what she was writing about, you know? And my dad loves, um, Kurosawa and like, you know, big epic films. So, uh, those were the sort of the influences. And then, you know, I said a little bit about Shay, but you know, it was interesting because we hadn't Really, we didn't. Shay and I didn't really know each other very well when we started writing, but we'd had this critical conversation in December of 2016, where we really it became so clear that we were just on the same page uh, as far as our feelings uh, at that time. And so, when the story came back to me, what it was was this idea of a of the confrontation between a, a person with a, with a um, very evolved value system and belief system and the extremely harsh reality of the world. Like that conflict was something I certainly felt like that as we saw these sort of norms and things we'd sort of depended on collapsing and wondering, you know, what that's like for a person and then especially for people who are not advantaged in the society that we've built, you know. And the anger that we felt <laughs> at that time was poured into this. As far as writing it goes, I think like as a director... I had a really big breakthrough on this project because um, I, I sort of learned about writing, you know, the, as a, people when you when you learn writing as a film student, it, you're learning it from a writer's perspective, and it, there was always sort of this um, conflict within me about being a director when I'm writing. Like I don't really want, I don't know how to be a writer. I'm a director, and so like when I was writing, I almost felt like I had this strange imposter syndrome, where like I was trying to make it look like a script. <laughs> um, and this movie, I decided to just experiment with thinking the way I think as a director if I'm staging a scene, but doing that in the writing process. And so 
um, there's basically what I started doing was I would I would I realized that I can't really write something until I can picture the story visually of that scene, and so what I started doing was writing the staging on its own with no dialogue, and um, so like it would it would say like Gretchen's at the desk, Sander comes in, uh, goes to the desk, you know, uh, Gretchen puts her head in her hands. Sandra leans leans against the desk. Arthur appears in the doorway. Sandra turns to Arthur. Sandra walks out. Like that's what I would write, and it would take about that long, you know, because I because that's the story of the scene. And then I would go back and say what dialogue is necessary. Hmm. And that that was sort of like um, our approach to writing these the, the whole script was to sort of start with watching people doing things and add dialogue as necessary. And Shay is this thing that Shay always says is complex characters, simple stories, and that's what was really appealing to us about the the framework of the story is so simple, but it can be filled with all this raw material from our lives and the things we were observing and trying to capture these dynamics in the country. I love hearing that you wrote that way. That's very interesting, and I feel like I'm sure a lot of writer directors. I you know when I'm writing a script, I feel similarly. I sort of want to pre visualize the movie. And I felt, you know, one of the things I really love about this film is it does feel very intentional, especially in the blocking and the staging, the composition. It feels uh, very controlled, but it still feels very naturalistic. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about, you know, given that even on a script level, it sounds like you had a very specific idea of blocking in your head. How did that ultimately translate to working on set with actors? Um, And, you know, were they open to that level of specificity or did you find things would shift? Well, what's really fascinating, I mean, first of all, um, a big part of the process for me, this is another aspect of trying to write as a director, is I feel like whenever I rehearse or like I have actors in a room, I, I finally understand what's in the script. Like you think you know, but then <laughs> when you show up, you can't deny it if it's working and you can't deny it if it's not working. Uh, I can be in denial. <laughs> well, of course, we. that's another part of the practice, isn't it? Uh, but... So a big part of this script process was actually workshopping it with actors, as you would a play. Um, so Shay and I, I think we were like a year and a half, five drafts deep into the script, and we felt we were starting to feel like it was pretty solid. And so at that stage, I gathered some actor friends, not the actors in the film, and um, we spent months, honestly, once or twice a week, we would meet up for about three months. And we, we, I basically saw every scene of the film on its feet with the, the actors off book, you know, with whatever necessary props. We just, we're just working in a, you know, a, a rehearsal space just to see it all. And we, and Shay was there and uh, our cinematographer, Andrew Wheeler, who's here tonight was there. So we were just workshopping every scene and that evolved the script. Uh, it made the script much deeper because you can take away all the dialogue when you see it. You know, you can, when I, when I showed up in Montana to direct the actual cast, <laughs> uh, I had seen all the scenes multiple times. And so I kind of, um, I kind of had some idea of what was going to work and what we didn't need to waste time on. And then of course, when you have the actual actors and I just can't overstate how, what a, like sort of beautiful group of people uh, this was to work with. I mean, uh, Yoris, who plays Nathan, and there he is, and Kai, who played the department chair, uh, are here tonight. And uh, 
we really like, I mean, it's, you know, when you go into Montana in the middle of nowhere in the winter and try to make a movie on a tiny budget, you're going to become a family. But like, it can't be overstated how important that is that the people were there because they cared about it. It wasn't a job to anybody. This is not a movie you do for the money. (laughs) Uh, And everyone takes their cue from the number one, you know. And Tandy Way set the standard of excellence for everyone on the set. Uh, An incredibly generous and uh, empathic and committed person. And uh, it just never would have been possible without her just showing up and carrying the entire movie on her shoulders. I mean, she's in every scene. But I don't, I I basically learned a lot from uh, doing like television, (laughs) actually, because on television, you have five minutes to do a private rehearsal before you, you know, uh, start shooting it. And that became a very valuable idea that, again, as a director, I really don't want to, like, I'm, of course, you make a plan but I don't actually want to get the plan. I want to get something that's better than what I would have come up with in my living room in LA, you know? So I will show up and without having any, um, giving any instruction about, you know, what I, what the blocking was I was imagining when I wrote the script, I will just see feels natural. Like the actors and I will work together and just find out if we buy it, you know? And if the story is being told physically in the space, visually without any you know words really no performance is happening then i will see how that lines up with what i had in mind but i would much rather adapt to what's happening at that moment than try to stick to the plan and a great example of that is um the bar scene at the end actually because that was written with um the character pointing the gun in the window um and almost like Kind of, there was just, there was this idea of like building this moment of like, oh, is she going to pull the trigger or not? And she kind of showed up on the day and was sort of like, I don't think I would point the gun through the window. And of course, when you hear that, it's like, well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> uh, and then it's just like, it's so, it's such a beautiful opportunity at that point to then find out what she would do and like listen to her. And so that was that was kind of uh, that's how I approached uh, working with all the actors. Was it's their character now, and I'm going to listen to them and act accordingly. That's great. I, I love the idea. I'm going to steal your idea of sort of pre-rehearsing everything just way ahead of time. I think that's genius. But then also very difficult sometimes to let that go and just embrace what's really happening in the moment. Um, but I think I think you really do feel that in the film. Um, I have to ask you, so correct me if any of this is incorrect, but um, you started shooting this movie in Montana in 2020 and then you got shut down because of COVID. And Correct. I, I believe a year elapsed before you continued shooting. So talk to us about that experience, uh, how you survived it. Recommend a good therapist. Uh, genuinely, I, I'd, I'd love to know about that. And everything you were going through, all the emotions, I really can't even fathom how difficult that would be. You finally made it. You're doing your first feature. <laughs> and then the universe really conspires against you. But but I, I also would love to know if anything changed within that year, if you revisited the script, if you looked at the footage that you had shot, what what did that entire experience look like? Yeah, well, thank you for asking about that because it is, it is first of all, I mean, obviously there were a number of movies that were shut down because of the pandemic, but not every movie got to continue. Mm. And, it's, and it's incredibly, it's a testament to the commitment of, especially the producers, obviously, um, but the cast 
you know, and, and every, frankly, most of the people who we were working with in 2020 came back in 2021. So there was a sense of, um, of sort of, uh, team spirit that was incredibly important in making that happen. But yeah, we started shooting in late February of 2020 and, uh, we shot three weeks <laughs> and we shut down and then 367 days went by and then we came back and shot another three weeks. Um, and of course, beyond it just being a catastrophe for the world at that moment, you know, I mean, forget about the movie. I was wondering if I would ever see people again, you know, those first few weeks were incredibly intense period. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I remember wondering if we would ever make movies again. Mm. And I actually asked my, my manager, (laughs) Jake Weiner, who's in the audience here, uh, I called him and he was at home in his garage because he had COVID. So he had moved into his garage. And I said, are we ever going to make movies again? And he said, yes, we're going to make movies again. <laughs> Which I thought was, I had, he had no reason to, I, had, I don't know how he felt so confident, but <laughs> I really held on to that, you know. And then, it be, and then it became our mission to figure out how we were going to do it. And like everything else with, you know, filmmaking, which is a completely irrational pursuit, you know, like no one would ever advise you to try to make a movie. You know, we just kind of decided we were going to do it and then we just had to figure out how. And in that period, in that year, my editor, Justin, who is really the, the hero of the piece um, for me, <laughs> uh, to sort of work for 18 months, essentially, on an edit. In that year, we started to edit all the three weeks we had shot, you know, and uh, we got to see how the decisions were panning out and you know, how the schedule was affecting the work and like different things that you don't get to usually apply to the same movie as you're making it. Usually we learn in the edit and then we have to wait for the next thing. But I felt like I almost got to make two first features in a way. So we learned a lot about how the project was going and I definitely came back much more confident, I would say, because we had gotten to see how things were coming together. And um, the only real thing that was affected was... um, some of the locations we had lost. But it, once again, I mean, once you say we're going to go back and do this, then it becomes opportunity, you know? So like the college that we were going to shoot at um, had fallen out of, we couldn't get it anymore. And this college I think is vastly preferable. <laughs> like it's really a beautiful location. But the amazing thing was to come back after a year and have the same people there in Montana and it was right in that window, right before the vaccine, when, you know, everything had to be done really to the, to the T. And uh, it was one of the more inspiring times of my life, actually, because we saw people really taking care of each other. And it was, I, I wonder if that would happen now. Um, but there was a moment when it was like dangerous enough to go do this and the people there, it, it meant so much to be, you know, this was the one, this was the thing we were all working on when the, when the world ended. <laughs> and so coming back and getting back together to do it again and finish it was much more than just finishing the job. It became, it felt to us like, um, you know, we were overcoming and sort of triumphing together. That's beautiful. Um, well, I love that. I mean, it is such a testament to, you know, everyone on your set, to the crew and the cast for coming back after a whole year. And I'm curious, actually, so those three weeks, were you shooting more or less chronologically? Did you have the beginning of the story or? Yeah, there are, there are scenes in the movie where 
from shot to shot, it's 2020, 2021. Um, you know, and one there was this, there's the sequence at the end, the night scene that ends with the fire. That was this incredibly complex plan that we had made, um, which, you know, this is a small movie. We actually really can't do night exteriors on this movie. Like that was a huge puzzle for us. Uh, Wheels, the cinematographer and I, um, we were trying to figure out how we could do this because the choices are so poor. <laughs> like you either, you can't really shoot night for night with no lights and you can't, um, re- we, didn't, we couldn't really effectively light a night exterior and it's Montana, it's pretty big. So we were trying to figure out how to do this and we thought about doing day for night and I had this completely lunatic idea, which was that instead of doing it as a scene, we would shoot one or two shots every day we were at the house at blue hour. And so we would shoot a shoot during the day and then we'd like make it splits and shoot during the day and then shoot a run outside and have two shots that we were going to figure out or whatever. And set them up and like we put cones on the ground ahead of time so we'd know where the camera goes and we just try to grab two shots of that sequence in the hour that you have in Montana in blue hour and this was like not gonna work and then of course uh, the pandemic interrupted it so we had shot maybe I don't know a few of those shots and then we had to wait a year so we had this sort of like patchy sequence we were editing and so like within that sequence it really is like they drive up the hill in 2020, they arrive in 2021, they get out in 2020, they go, you know, it's like, it's just absolutely wild to watch it. But um, I think probably the thing that saved us is the winter coats, you know, because you can't tell. I mean, Jefferson White, who plays uh, uh, Samuel, the younger brother, um, had gained 40 pounds of muscle in the year for Yellowstone. <laughs> and uh, you can't tell because he's wearing a big winter coat. So good thing we wasn't like a tropical island movie, you know. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that it's either like a production that has infinite resources that can shoot at blue hour or it's one like yours, which is it's literally just the last and only recourse. I mean, I think I think that's that's this is what people always say about um, budget and equipment and whatever whatever kind of constraint you have is actually an opportunity for you. Mm. There's always a solution. It's it, it is a creative solution. And so we, we had to figure out how to make that happen. The same thing with the house burning. Like we obviously did not burn a house, but we also didn't do, we couldn't really afford to do VFX. And frankly, I'm not a big VFX VFX guy. fire always looks bad. <laughs> yeah, like I just think good. on some level you can always tell when it's CGI. So that is the oldest trick in the book. It is a scale model burning. And uh, it, ta- it costs like you know, $750 of lumber to build the facade of the house in the Livingston Fire Department in Montana, in the backyard of the Livingston Fire Department. And the fire, you know, the firefighters were very excited to set something on fire. So they, they just stuck around after hours and they fill it up with brush and stuff and we just set it on fire. And we, so all the fire you're seeing in that shot is real. And then when we went to the, um, you know, the actual location to shoot with the guys in front and everything. It's just smoke coming down from behind the house. It's some lights on the front of the house twinkling into the landscape. And it is the simplest comp in the world to just take the fire, put it over the house and like erase the lights. And so that's why I think it works on a big screen like this. I mean, this is the best screen in town. I was like really looking at it tonight. Uh, 
And I was, it works because it's all real, you know? And those are the solutions you come up with when you have no money and no time. And they're the best solutions. So that's amazing. It's, it's really seamless. I would not have thought that was a model. Well, thank you. Well done. I mean, it's slow motion. I mean, it's a slow motion fire. It's, it was a quarter scale model. Um, something I wanted to ask you about, and I think, you know, it's a really interesting film. I don't think it's by any means a film that gives you easy answers. Um, it's challenging in that way. And I think normally, you know, revenge thrillers, it's, it's pretty easy to sort of, you know, I think the, the vengeance is cathartic. Whereas in this movie, uh, I think the feelings you have watching it are a lot more complicated and there's this sort of steady escalation. But for me personally, and I'm sure every audience member would have a different relationship to it, but I found myself at times questioning our protagonist uh, in a way that I'm sure was probably intentional. But I'd love for you to speak a little bit about if you thought about the expectations of the audience and what you ultimately wanted them to feel or take away from the movie. Ooh, great question. Um, yes, the expectations of the audience were essentially all Shay and I talked about. Uh, because it's not just you know uh, expectations based on the plot of the specific movie, it's also expectations based on the genre. You know, and that's the advantage of genre if you're trying to um, you know, talk about some you know, pressing issues in the world is, you know, the audience, you have the audience's expectations, you can understand them. I mean, we, we all know these character types. We all know the sort of scene types that happen in Westerns. And so we kind of can, as writers, we can understand what the audience is going to think is going to happen pretty clearly. And then you can subvert that and you can transgress that. And, and we really did want to sort of aggressively subvert the genre here. Yeah, I mean, this thing as far as the protagonist goes, it's actually all the characters. I mean, it was very important to us to steer clear of the kind of good guys and bad guys idea. I mean, the thing that I love about the short story is that there's, yes, there's this sort of external conflict between this guy and the hunters on his property, and it's sort of generational. But actually, that's, a, that's a, just a reflection of this internal struggle of the character. It's really a character study, the short story. And it's about this guy who is struggling between his ideals and his sort of sense of how he wants life to be led and uh, his more primal, animal, violent uh, instincts, you know. And so it was really important to us to make it so that all these characters are humans uh, who can make mistakes, who are, nobody thinks they're a villain in this movie. And, um, you know, Sandra is a human being who is, grieving and like even without this situation that evolves she's in a in a very important moment of her life and it's very complex for her regardless so that to me it makes it more challenging you know i mean we wanted to challenge the audience of this movie and it's not challenging if you can easily understand how you're supposed to feel about the characters you know if it's black hats and white hats it just stops being interesting you know then and if if you're trying to make a story where there are human being, beings who are struggling to figure out how to live and like what they want and it's not always clear to them, then you can end up in a scene like the church scene. And, dis- and we just sort of discovered at that at, as we wrote the movie that they have so much shared experience, you know. And um, in order to find the story tragic, you do have to see what was lost, the opportunity that was missed, you know. So... Um, starting with the idea that they were humans really opened up the story for us and allowed us to do this adaptation. 
And I know you talked about it a little bit already, but I'd love to hear more about working with Tandy Way. Um, she's so incredible um, and always has been, but I think this is a particularly amazing performance from her. And it just feels, you know, in that sort of classic Western style, in a lot of ways, she's um, not a person who's putting across a lot through dialogue. There's a lot happening below the surface, um, even a stoicism occasionally. And I just wonder, what were your conversations like with her? How did she, did she, you know, help shape this character at all? And, you know, ultimately, what was the sort of casting process like? How did she get involved in the film? Well, she got involved in the film um, in a way that is um, quite unexpected. <laughs> uh, the... This again. This is a small movie, and uh, frankly, we we were auditioning. We decided to audition um, for this role. So um, the casting director sent out a breakdown, and all the agents and managers received the breakdown. And her agents spotted the movie and said, "Would you be interested in Tandy Way Newton for this?" And uh, that was not a hard question to answer. <laughs> um, I mean, she's. I've been a fan of hers. You know, for years. I mean, it's it's hard not to be a fan of hers. Um, and she had been someone we talked about in sort of like our dream scenarios kind of situation. But it's not a it's not a plan to get someone of her caliber in your first feature. I mean, I don't know. It just it didn't seem possible. And uh, so I wrote her a very passionate one page letter explaining why I thought she you know would be perfect for it. And I still can't think of anyone that I would rather have in this role. I mean, she is, this is, it's unthinkable. Um, and I guess from our first conversation, she uh, expressed that she just identified with so much about the story and about the character. And she told me that she really wanted to be the person to tell the story. And so, yes, I mean, as I was saying, it's, you write a character and you think you know who the character is, but then an actor materializes in real life and now it's, it was hers. Like we had to, we gave it to her and then it became on us. Uh, and I'm, by us, I mean uh, myself and Shay um, to listen to her, you know, because she has the experience that we're trying to portray authentically. So it makes, it's, it's an incredible opportunity to hear her, all her ideas. And she had lots of ideas, you know, and uh, then throughout the pandemic too, you know, we, we just sort of stayed in touch and scenes got rewritten during that time. Like we just had so much extra time <laughs> that you normally don't get on a film to work on it. So, and then as far as on set goes, I mean, she is just such a wonderful person. Like, she's, like she, we had to call her early to set because she would go around and hug everyone, you know? And, um, and she would bring people homemade snacks, you know? Like she really was just a lovely person to work with. Um, but as far as the conversation about the character, it was just an ongoing conversation that started in our first phone call and went all the way through post. I also showed her cuts of the film and and literally from take to take, I, my my two ADs, we had two different ADs. One We call it season one and season two. <laughs> season one AD Gary Cotty is over here and season two AD Ian Putnam is out here too. Um, but uh, basically... The typical scene would be we do take one, and then she would come up to me and she'd be like, "It's almost like she's trying to figure out what's going." You know, like she would start explaining what she had experienced in take one, you know, and then Gary would be standing there going like, you know, uh, and I'd be like, 
cool, cool. That sounds great. Let's, let's explore that some more. And then she'd go do another take and then she'd come back to me and she'd be like, but on the other hand, it's almost like, you know, so like we, it was literally an ongoing conversation that just, that uh, was interrupted by some filming, you know? Well, one thing I'm definitely going to take away is that occasionally writing impassioned letters to actors does work. I didn't. I've Passionate one page letters have become a specialty of mine. Uh, <laughs> it's also how I got James Lee Burke to allow us to God. adapt okay. to the short story. <laughs> you have to teach me how to write a better impassioned letter because mine have never really worked out. <laughs> we'll talk. <laughs> we'll talk. Um, I think we have to wrap it up. But Julian, thank you so much. Um, this was incredibly insightful, as it always is when I'm speaking to you. Um, the film is beautiful, and I'm so happy to have been able to talk to you about it for a little thank bit. Thank you so much for doing this, Chloe. It really does mean a lot to me. And thank you all for being here. Um, it's really awesome to share this with you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.